Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Students in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, Walking Through the Book Through New Eyes by James Jordan. And here the guys will be in chapter 12, titled Eden, The World of Transformation. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, take a look at our new show, The Civitas Podcast, which is now on all streaming platforms. That new show is hosted by Peter Lightheart and James Wood. And in that show, they'll be talking with one another and guests about Christian political theory, ecclesiocentrism, and post-liberalism. Do keep up to date with our upcoming events, especially our upcoming course in the month of March with Peter Lightheart as he explores Paul and Pauline theology. You can find all of the information that you need for that course and registration at the link in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and getting it all ready for our listening audience. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. We're in the middle of a series of conversations about James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. And uh, we're going to be talking about chapter 12 today, uh, talking about Eden, the World of Transformation, which is laying out the basic structure and pattern of the world of the Bible. And then uh, that's a setup that's a preliminary prolegomena, if you will, to the uh, the history of covenants and the history of the Bible that he's going to lay out in the following chapters, each of which is a kind of uh, transformation and glorification of the original uh, universe, uh, the original cosmos and a world that God created in, with, the, with the garden and the land. I want to highlight a few things at the beginning here that uh, we've talked a, a fair bit over the course of this series about uh, Jim as a biblical commentator and theologian, but there were, I want to highlight a couple of specific things that came up to me that reminded me, uh, this chapter reminded me of certain particular gifts that Jim has as a thinker and theologian. One of the things we, we mentioned at the, this in the last episode, when we were talking about Jim's uh, work on priesthood and the way he describes priest as guardian in Three New Eyes, and later develops that and expands on it, enhances it, uh, into a, a fuller and more rounded picture of priesthood. That was partly, as we discussed, because of my dissertation work on priesthood, the priesthood of the plebes, and uh, I concluded that a priest is fundamentally a, a household servant of Yahweh. He's a palace servant of Yahweh uh, who takes care of the house and ministers to the, the, uh, the Lord of the house. What was interesting is that uh, Jim just absorbs that new material and brings it into his into his uh, way of thinking about priesthood. I think that was that rethinking of priesthood clarified for him the way that priest, king, and prophet worked. And the sequence that we talked about in the last episode was partly because of that, that uh, kind of new paradigm of priesthood. And just, uh, I've always been astonished at Jim's openness to uh, revision, openness to new information. It became a kind of a running joke at Biblical Horizons conferences that uh, he would almost every year he would introduce some new twist on something he had said earlier, and so you know old James and new James. Uh, every every time there's old Jim and new Jim. Every every time he speaks, there's some some new wrinkle in what he's doing. He's always thinking about things, 
anew, fresh, as, as uh, new light is shed. I've noticed uh, this too with Jim in, in that regard that um, I've seen this with other, other people I've had been privileged to have contact with. He not only absorbs new material, but he improves it in the process. You know, I, I, my work in, on priesthood was narrowly focused on priesthood. I was not thinking about its relation to kingship or prophetic ministry. But Jim brought this notion of priesthood into his thinking and elevated and improved it, uh, glorified it, you could say. Uh, and he does it, he did that constantly. When our, in, in our Biblical Horizons conferences, we were all contributing to a, an ongoing 25-year conversation. And every time some new insight would, would uh, be offered, uh, Jim would have a way of kind of expanding it and, and, uh, and improving it. Another thing that I realized, um, again, in this, in this chapter was the expansiveness of Jim's uh, influences. Jim is a familiar with biblical studies. He's familiar with Reformed theology. But some of the most important influences on his thinking about the Bible are not theological sources or sources from traditional biblical studies. Uh, I'm thinking, for, for example, of the importance of Mary Douglas's work, Purity and Danger. And uh, she has a chapter in Purity and Danger on the dietary laws of Leviticus, the abominations of Leviticus. Uh, and Douglas has become uh, hugely important in both Jewish and Christian understanding of Leviticus. Uh, but Jim, that's uh, Douglas is a really important influence on the way Jim thinks about Leviticus. And uh, more broadly, uh, Douglas and other cultural anthropologists give a, another kind of way of thinking about what's in the Bible, uh, rather than thinking about it in terms of trying to formulate doctrinal propositions from the Bible, you're, you have a much more holistic cultural anthropological understanding of the Bible that comes out of Jim's work. Another influence that I, I think that he cites, uh, Mircea Eliade, in this work, a, a scholar of comparative religion, I, I believe he was Romanian, wrote a number of books about recurring patterns of religious practice, uh, the, the holy mountain, for example, uh, the pillar, the altar. Those are obviously recurring the, the umbilicus mundi, the, uh, the belly button of the world, that concept, and a, a sanctuary or house that's built at the axis or umbilicus mundi. That kind of, that kind of idea is recurring in, in uh, many world religions. Uh, and uh, Jim is picking that up and seeing it in the Bible, seeing the true form of it in the Bible, but uh, is influenced in the way he's reading the Bible by this, uh, by this outside perspective. And that's, that's beyond just uh, Jim's exposure to literature in general and music. And um, Jim would often suggest that if you want to, if you want to learn to read the Bible, you should listen to more music. Uh, you should read a poem. Those are as, uh, those are good training for uh, learning how to get the, get the rhythms and the, the cadences of scripture. One last point, I, would, I, I could make several others. One last point is you also get Jim the fundamentalist in this chapter. Uh, he has this expansive and rich and creative understanding of the Bible but then uh, there's a section of this chapter where he's trying to locate the, the he's trying to determine the location of the Garden of Eden uh, by tracing back the different rivers that flow out of the garden. And he suggests that the original location of the Garden of Eden is in Armenia. He thinks that it's somewhere close to the place where Noah's Ark landed. So the, this new Adam, Noah, begins, uh, re restarts human history from something near the same location that uh, the first Adam started human history. Um, that's you know that kind of uh, that kind of enterprise is not something you find in a lot of mainstream biblical scholarship. It would be scoffed at by mainstream biblical scholarship. Uh, but Jim combines this this very hardcore fundamentalist 
uh, insistence on the authority of the historical reality of what is in the Bible with this very creative and expansive understanding. That's uh, it's partly that combination that I think makes Jim so unique and has made, made him such a good resource uh, for the work that I've tried to do over the years. Just a brief comment by way of intro. Um, something that strikes me as, uh, as important about this chapter, chapter 12, is that whereas previously a lot of um, what Jim has been doing has been based on word studies and various other things. So last week we were talking about the priesthood and the way in which to um, serve and to guard the garden, those two verbs get carried over into priestly literature a lot and various other chapters have been like that this chapter struck me as a lot more visual um and a lot more kind of uh graphic and imaged base and so there is there are comparisons between different kind of tall uh, structures kind of mountains compared with pillars or altars as uh, peter's mentioned and kind of the four rivers compared with four corners of uh, altars i mean that that is i guess verbal in that you've got the word four but then with the the cross which is nowhere said to have these kind of four axes to it four points to it but obviously uh does and that seems to be um like a, a shift in direction that struck me as as important in in this chapter yeah that's interesting it's an interesting observation i think you're right that there is that that shift um, a lot of what Jim does and is going to do in the in the remainder of the book has that visual dimension to it. And I, I don't think you're implying this, but I think it would be important to uh, indicate that uh, in, in Jim's work, there's not any kind of contradiction between the two. He's seeing these analogies, but he's seeing the analogies sometimes by just uh, kind of uh, recognizing a, a similar pattern in different uh, in different in different realms. But the clue to the similar pattern is often found in the in the wording of the text. For example, I mean, for example, the idea that an altar is a holy mountain, that's not something that's just a matter of visual similarity. Uh, he cites uh, Ezekiel 43, which actually calls the altar a mountain. Uh, and when he talks about uh, Eden being placed on a mountain, uh, that's partly a, an inference from the fact that the rivers flow from Eden uh, down to the lower ground. Uh, it's flowing, water is flowing downhill. But it's also, again, in Ezekiel, you have that uh, explicit reference to the garden of God on the high mountain. So um, the, 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 visual, the visual similarities are there, but often stimulated by, by verbal connections. And it, just classic um, Jordan, when you read some of this, maybe even especially this, this chapter, um, <clears throat> for the first time, if you're not used to his way of reading the scripture, you'll kind of shake your head and say, well, that that's kind of crazy. Um, that's really out there. That's really wild. Uh, just what you mentioned, Peter, about the mountain, uh, about altars being mountain. And then, then you, and then the more you read the Bible, uh, which is why it's so important to just read the Bible, you'll begin to see things that he saw and just for example, I remember uh, reading through Exodus 20 or Exodus 19 and 20, where the Lord descends in the glory cloud on Mount Sinai and there's fire and smoke on top of the mountain. And, and then Moses, of course, goes up into that fire and smoke. But then immediately after uh, the Ten Commandments are given at the end of Exodus 20, you have uh, the instructions for 
the altar. And well, lo and behold, the altar is made of uncut stones. And so it's, it's a mountain. And on top of that mountain is a fiery presence, smoke and fire. And animals are going to ascend up that altar. Now, man is not supposed to walk up that. It's not supposed to be a stepped ziggurat or altar. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mountain, but animals will. Uh, and so that's like Moses going up into the mountain. And so seeing that, I mean, it doesn't say in the text that the altar is a holy mountain, but the associations are there. And once, if you get in your mind some of Jim's categories and associations, you're reading through scripture and you'll see things like that. You know, and you're like, oh, wow, that makes sense. That's just another example of how he has discerned things that a lot of readers just miss. And a lot of this is about some of the images within scripture, which clearly draw these sorts of associations. And we just need to be attentive to them and take things, particularly from more visionary prophecy, and use it to inform our reading of passages that are deploying these sim- symbols, but without the same um, sort of visionary connections. So, for instance, if you're reading through Revelation and you read about the um, four corners of the world and the four angels holding back the four winds of heaven. And then a couple of chapters time, you read about the four horns of the golden altar before the Lord. Those sorts of images are connected to each other. And there's a way of understanding um, the one that comes from the other, that the four angels um, holding back the four winds, they're associated with the four horns of the altar. And so the earth is associated in turn with the altar. Elsewhere, you'll see platforms created that have the same dimensions as the altar where the king is praying or something like that and it gives you a sense of what the altar means and what's taking place there and what are the analogies being drawn or you might think about the ways that there are analogies drawn even within the sacrificial process between the golden altar of incense um, and then the main altar of the bronze altar in the courtyard and so these sorts of connections arise from visionary material. They arrive, arise from the um, sacrificial rites. They arise from even when you consider the dimensions of these things and the narratives and the instructions that are given for their creation, there are analogies drawn there. And it helps you to understand all of these things when you bring them into relationship through these um recognized analogies that are given to us within the text if we actually pay attention and from that we are left not just with brute facts that this is this physical bronze altar that has these particular dimensions we recognize that it is associated with all these other entities it's associated with the golden altar before the lord the four horns being connected with angels it's not the same thing but there is some traffic of significance that goes both directions and that sort of analogy is profoundly illuminating whenever we're reading these sorts of passages it helps us to understand what these entities are about a couple of the formats or world models that uh, jim talks about in this chapter are the three-decker universe 
and uh, the organization of the earth divided into garden, land, and world. And those are both really important paradigms for what he's going to do uh, later in the book. I mean, the three-decker universe is obvious from Genesis 1. God creates, uh, just think about the visible universe. God creates uh, and forms a, a firmament that's uh, above with sun, moon, and stars in it. There's land with land creatures and man. And then uh, the sea is pictured as being below the land, uh, filled with fish and sea creatures. And so you have this uh, heaven, earth, and sea kind of structure. And what Jim is doing with that is not, that, that, is, that is the biblical world. When you have references to what's in heaven, what's on earth, and what's under the earth, that's talking about every, everything in the visible universe. But what, what Jim is doing with that is showing that there's a couple of directions where this visible three-decade universe symbolizes some other kind of universe, uh, some uh, more metaphorical kind of universe. So uh, heaven above is designed to be a symbol, a visible symbol of the highest heaven. So we have uh, the hosts of the stars and the heavens above are a reminder every night of the uh, myriads and myriads of angels that uh, serve around the throne of God. The sun shining is in, it shines in its strength. The sun is like uh, a bridegroom. The sun is, uh, God is the sun and the shield. So looking up into the sky and seeing the sun, the sun shining is a revelation of what's, what's in the highest heaven. And then uh, the sea too represents an invisible abyss, an invisible lake of fire to put in terms of Revelation 20 and 21. So that's one dimension of the symbolism of the visible universe. The other one is political. Uh, and I think this is really fruitful because uh, Jim points out, points a number of passages where land and sea, that created distinction between land and sea uh, becomes a political distinction between Israel and the Gentile world. The Gentile world is pictured as this churning of the sea, that's uh, this, constant, this tempestuous world uh, that's constantly threatening the land, but the Lord has set his people as a mountain uh, that can't be overwhelmed by the sea. Exile is sometimes pictured as water overflowing the land. The sea uh, breaks its boundaries and overflows into the land that, like the Gentiles who come charging into uh, Israel. So the, the three-decker universe, the other paradigm that he uses is garden, land, and world. God, Adam is placed in a world that's already mapped. God plants a garden east in Eden. Eden is already designated somehow as a land, and the garden is in the east side of that land. And then later in Genesis 2, we read of other lands. We read specifically of Havilah, where there's golden onyx stones. So there's a world outside of Eden, and that paradigm of garden, land, and world becomes uh, very important for understanding human life. We exist in all those environments. We live our lives as worshipers in the garden. We live our lives in homes, in land. We live our lives in, in relation to outsiders and strangers, and also to a wider world where we're supposed to uh, serve God as kings and witnesses. And also that garden, land, world paradigm becomes really important for understanding the different transformations of the Edenic world. Uh, that that carry on through the Bible. Maybe before we go any further, it'd be helpful. It'd certainly be helpful to me if one of you guys could kind of summarise what what you see as as the overall gist of this chapter. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm still in the process of digesting it. I mean, it, it seems as if Jim is saying that basically these significant events that we see in world history, so the creation of the world and God's description of it, um, Noah's Ark, uh, the zones of Mount Sinai, the, the temple, etc. These are world models. So, I mean, they're 
they're kind of world defining events obviously in some sense aren't they after the flood this was kind of noah's world you know there is a new jerusalem that that is a new world um but there, there's a there's so there, there's a direction of travel to them uh, at the same time i guess each of them teach us about our world so there are things that i learned presumably from solomon's temple about the world around me now so um yeah i, I wonder if kind of one of you could sort of string uh together how, how you think this all um uh fits together and contributes to answer that james uh, with really basic kind of answer is that what jim is doing here is giving us uh, something that's foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible, these categories, these uh, distinctions, these archaeological uh, models, this, these, uh, the demographics, uh, the visuals, all of this is important for understanding biblical history. Um, and of course, eventually, everything that Jesus does. I've noticed in talking about this with with others, members of my congregation, even going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that I think modern people, we have this idea that somehow scientific language is a more accurate description of reality of our lives uh, than than the kind of thing that Jim's doing, that, that the kind of thing that Jim's doing is kind of mythology. Oh, and you'll hear you'll hear people do this, you know, the three-decade universe, the four corners of the earth. That all is kind of ancient Near Eastern mythology. And when we read about that in the Bible, we have to demythologize it because, you know, we have to put it into language, the language of philosophy or the language of science, and kind of just move beyond that to something more precise, something more real, which is usually just ideas or um, theological statements and propositions. But I think one of the things that Jim is doing here is saying, you need to have, uh, you need to have your, your mind expanded, you need to have your imagination stimulated, uh, because if it's not, if and it's not stimulated by these categories, these, this, this vision, uh, these images, these symbols, um, then you're not really going to get the richness in the rest of the Bible, okay? The Bible is not given to us to distill down into systematic theological propositions. Uh, it, it's also given to us to, well, I mean, and it's not wrong to do that, to do that on some level. Um, obviously, I'm not poo-pooing uh, systematic theology. But on the other hand, you need your mind expanded. <laughs> um, and the expansion of, I, I see a chapter like this, in fact, the whole book really, is expanding our minds so that we can drink in the riches of biblical revelation. There are pharmaceutical ways to have your minds expanded too, but we, we don't recommend those, but um, it might, might have the <laughs> That might have some adverse consequences. I think oh, that's, a bit, that's a big thing these days, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, well, maybe I could, uh, I'm just summarizing what Jeff was saying. Uh, I think, James, what's going on in this chapter is basically mapping. Jim is, is mapping out the way the world looks in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, he's, he's showing the 
topography to some extent, the high, high ground and low ground. And then uh, that's all, again, prolegomena to what he's going to do in later chapters, where he's going to take that map and show how the, how the world gets remapped. Uh, but always as a variation on this original mapping that you have in, in, the, in the creation account. And it really is important to understand many of the passages that we come across, even within Genesis, where, for instance, the um, story of the flood, this return, breaking down of the whole cosmos to its foundations, restoring it to this state of just this vast sea. And then the significance of the mountain, that they, uh, there is a new covenant formed upon Mount Ararat, and as you go through the rest of scripture, you can see the same thing, for instance, in the deliverance from Egypt, going through the sea, being brought through the land to the mountain. Or you can see it in Revelation, the idea of, for instance, this dragon in the heaven sanctuary that corresponds with a land beast and a sea beast. And you can see the way that it is um, explaining the movement between the covenants from an emphasis upon the land and sheep and shepherds to an emphasis upon the sea and the fish and throughout the gospels this um the imagery of fishing takes the place of what was um shepherding in the old testament i think we can also understand something like the story of um the book of jonah along similar lines all of these um stories are working with this fundamental mapping of the world into these different realms in this three-decker universe. And Jordan just giving us the basic grammar of that, from which any of these stories will start to make a lot more sense, and we can begin to see the spiritual movements that are taking place that correspond with the geographical movements. You can also think about the way that at the end of Scripture, you have this garden city that, in the original depiction of the garden we're told about the surrounding lands and their treasures the precious stones and the gold of the land of Havilah which is good there's the expectation even within that that surely this gold is not going to remain in the ground it's going to be brought in it's going to glorify and dress the garden and man's going to go out from the garden and man's going to act upon this world and then in Revelation we see the treasures of gold and precious stones brought into the city but also the gates are gates of pearl because the riches of the sea have been brought in too. And when you're thinking in terms of the three-decker universe, that just has a bit of an extra force to it. We begin to see the riches of the Gentiles are brought in. We have the, the sea beasts that arise in, in Daniel. They arise from the sea. And that's because this three-decker universe is um, the model that we're supposed to think of. Likewise, when you see the depiction of Babylon or Assyria or Egypt within the prophets, so often it's a sea monster because they are the creatures of this symbolic sea that corresponds with the actual sea, but it's also part of this larger symbolic framework that helps us to understand the orientation of the world more generally, politically, not just topographically. Okay, so we've kind of got then a series of world models, say Eden's world, Noah's world, Sinai's world, etc. But these aren't just 
disconnected things like a snapshot of a desert, then a forest, then a moonscape or, or, or something. Rather, these have a consistency to them, you know, a, a high point, um, a river flowing out, three stories, etc. So in one sense, as I scroll through these world models, I'm seeing the transformation of a, of a world. Um, but at the same time, I'm learning things about the world around me because they're all expanding on one another. So it's almost like a a zooming in in greater and greater detail on what God has done and on the nature of God's universe. Is, is, is something like that a, a right way of thinking about it? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that's uh, I think that's what he's trying to do. He said this chapter again is setting up for what he's going to do in the following chapters. Uh, the other dimension of it, he, he brings this up at the beginning of the chapter, doesn't expand on it a lot, at least to my recollection, is the that each of these, he's, he's talking in, the, in this chapter about the design of the universe, of the cosmos, the three-decker universe, earth divided with high places and low places, uh, that kind of thing. But then at the beginning of the chapter, he, he introduces it by talking about the tabernacle and the temple and how much attention is paid in uh, Exodus and uh, First Kings to those structures. Uh, and part of the point he's uh, part of the point he's bringing out, he, he will bring out over the course of the book, the rest of the book, is the connection between the mapping of the universe and the mapping of those uh, sanctuaries. The sanctuary is, not, is a place of worship, but the sanctuary is also a, a microcosm. It has the same structure as the macrocosm. There's a, there's a high heaven environment in the temple. There's a and a firmament environment in the temple. There's an earth environment in the temple. Uh, the temple establishes a garden land world, a more complicated form of the garden land world map that was established in the original creation. So he's leading up to those uh, later microcosmic models. That's uh, that's also part of what he's what he's what he's getting at here. But the, the other thing I was going to say was the the link that he makes between the heavenly pattern, and all of these different earthly environments. So he's, this is a point he made uh, early on in the book, that there's a, the pattern of glory is uh, replicated in the visible glory of God. God manifests the, the eternal glory that he is in the visible glory, the glory cloud. And then that uh, visible glory becomes a, a pattern and model for, uh, particularly for sanctuaries. So Moses goes up into the cloud and in the cloud, he sees the sanctuary and then replicates what he sees in the cloud at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there's a, there's a, there are multiple connections between the glory and uh, the way the tabernacle is put together. Uh, Meredith Klein's book, Images of the Spirit, brings this out. So there's that heaven imprinted on the sanctuary, that uh, aspect of it. But then the sanctuary becomes a model for the rest of the world. So the sanctuary is kind of an earthly heaven that is set up to be the paradigm or model that uh, other environments are supposed to imitate. So the way that the sanctuary is organized sets a pattern for how families should be organized, for example. The, the sanctuary sets a pattern for how nations should be organized because the, the sanctuary is the place where the heavenly pattern is most directly imprinted. So there's a this, this fits with what we talked about in the last episode, among other things, but it 
the 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 whole idea that um, God's purpose for the world is to move it from glory to glory, from transformation to transformation. He's a, a central mechanism, if you will, for doing that is the construction of these different mappings with uh, different forms of the sanctuary at the center. Uh, Peter, maybe you can comment on this, but it strikes me that this also connects up with what you've been talking about in the Civitas podcast with the ecclesiocentric kind of political vision um, so that what's what's going on in the garden, what's going on in the sanctuary, what's going on in the church becomes a model for the way the family needs to be organized or the the the, the neighborhood, the community, the city, the uh, the nation. Uh, is is that accurate? Yeah, that's uh, that's very much what we're after. So the the church within a nation becomes a the church is an eschatological out, outpost within within an earthly nation. And it sets a, a kind of telos, and it, it models in some way uh, the way people are supposed to be living together. Never want to insist that the distinction between church and world, church and nation, is never erased. The church is uniquely itself a unique communion in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's not true of any other people. But still, there are various ways in which the church, the church teaches the nations. I mean, the, the, the vision of, of Isaiah 2 with the, the law flowing out from uh, the elevated Zion. The ch- church teaches the nations. Nations bring their treasures to the church. So you have this uh, exchange of gifts that's going on between the church and the nation. Yeah, it's very much the, uh, at the heart of the model that we're trying to promote in uh, the Civitas group. And again, this is not a model that's just... Um, imposed upon the text from outside. This is a model that we see very clearly fleshed out in places like the end of Revelation with the water flowing out of the garden city and the the nations coming in. All of these things are there in the text. And this is just putting it together and working with the image that God has given us. And may, maybe it would be helpful also just to note that Jim is not the only one who has this kind of model. I'm thinking of uh, G.K. Beale's book, uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission, where he links sanctuary and garden and temple and church and his his missional kind of uh, philosophy here flows out of the same kinds of concerns that Jim has here in this chapter. I think one of the, one of the, uh, uh, mappings that we haven't touched on is uh, his discussion of the four corners. Maybe we, maybe we alluded to it, but I just wanted to highlight that uh, a bit more. Again, he's finding this in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the first reference to four anything in the Bible is to the four rivers that go out from Eden through the garden and out to other lands. And uh, again, Jim the fundamentalist is talking, thinks these are real rivers. Uh, when uh, Genesis 2 talks about the Tigris flowing out of Eden, he thinks the Tigris really did flow out of Eden uh, through the garden and so on. Uh, and they don't literally flow out to four corners. But the the numerical connection between uh, going out from the sanctuary out to the world associated with the number four, um, that, that's what he's establishing in Genesis 2. And then you have repeated references to fourfold, fourfold structures uh, elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven. Uh, the four horns of the altar, the four faces of the cherubim. As Irenaeus said, 
because of all those fours, we have four gospels. That's why we have four gospels because there are four faces of the cherubim. So Irenaeus would have understood Jim's argument here, even if uh, we have, uh, we might struggle with it. But apart, but I think behind that, I think this is the the more complete picture. The idea that the world has four corners is a way of describing the world as uh, as the Lord's house. The cosmic structure is a temple structure. God creates a cosmic temple. And then within that cosmic temple, he creates a microcosm, the garden initially, and then the various sanctuaries. But the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of God, like the, uh, the, like the most holy place is at, uh, when it's completed at the foot of Sinai, like the temple is after Solomon completes it. The whole earth is going to be most holy place, as, as Revelation 21 and 22 indicate to us. So um, the world as house, and then you picture the world as having four corners, uh, that that the four corner idea is uh, uh, is related to that world as temple or world as house picture, and then you transfer that into the new covenant key where the the house becomes the human house made up of living stones, uh, and so you have not just four corners of a an architectural structure, but you have four corners of a human society. And Jim points out the uh, the various ways that those uh, that four corner idea comes out in different parts of the Bible. David and his top three mighty men, Jesus and his top three apostles. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but then you have other cornerstones. All the apostles are foundation stones, but Peter, James, and John function in this special way as cornerstones because what Jesus is doing is building the human house uh, that is going to be the habitation of God, and that human house is the habitation of God is going to glorify the world to become a cosmic house that is the habitation of God. So that the four corner idea, I think, I think it's uh, helpful to see it in connection with that that image of uh, house and temple as the structure of the cosmos. And also, it brings us back to reflect upon the numerous occasions in Scripture that we have four sided entities that are significant. So the camp of Israel. I mean, it could just be a circle. Why? Why is it a, a square or a four sided structure or? the ways that things in Ezekiel are described, or the the tabernacle, or the way in which the altar is a four-sided entity. All of these needn't have been four-sided. They could have been a different shape entirely, but the fact that they are four-sided um, is to be understood in part in terms of this four corners of the world model. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.